Welcome, Legionaries, to Legion Cast, episode 31, The Outcast Dead. I am your host, Warwick, and joining me today from the same mic is co-host Brandon. Welcome, Legion brothers, Legion sisters, and often forgotten, but never by me, your game buddies who are also your drinking buddies. Welcome to Legion Cast. Great to be here. Great to be in the same room. If our uh, quality is a little bit weird uh, on this episode, it's because we are sitting right next to each other recording out of one mic. Yep. Uh, it's certainly been a productive, if not a little painful weekend with the, uh, well, week, I should say, with the few hangovers I've had already. It's been a bit brutal, but it's been a lot of fun. Uh, we've been doing painting. We've been had had a couple of games. We've had a couple of guests. It's been an absolute blast. I can't wait to tell you all about it. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely with the hangovers, there's been a couple of games of Beer Hammer. <clears throat> uh, but it's been a lot, a lot of good fun. And uh, looking forward to this episode as well. Uh, Warwick, what's on your hobby table, though? So I have knocked out, in the past couple of days, I got done with 10 Breachers, 10 Assault Marines, 3 Apothecaries, my Ultramarines Praetor, the, the Forge World Ultramarines Praetor, as well as the, the newer Plastic Chaplain model, which I'm going to be running in a list very soon. So I was very excited about that. They turned out very well. Brandon, you actually taught me a new method for painting capes that I'm very happy with. I need to refine it a little bit, but I had fun doing it the first time. And then tomorrow, I'm going to dig into five more Invictoris Scissorane with Thunder Hammers as well as painting five Fulmentaris Terminators. And that's about all I need to knock out before next weekend. Yeah, awesome. No, your stuff's been looking great, and uh, you've been making some really great progress over the past few days especially. I am currently working on a Whirlwind Scorpius uh, that I need to get ready for. uh, We are going to the Ferex event that is coming up in Kansas City next weekend at time of recording. I think this episode will be coming out just before heading to that. But uh, I've also been kind of in a mad dash to get 3,000 points of Dark Angels ready. Mm-hmm. It's been uh, it's been going along well. Although I've been getting a little bit distracted because I've also been putting together my Emperor's Children because I want to try and get us a game in of that. Your Emperor's Children are looking outstanding. I, I can't believe how awesome that purple is turning out. And I know I threw some pictures up on the social media of that, the Sun Killers you put together, and they look excellent so you're doing a great job with those i'm looking forward to playing against them yeah hopefully uh tomorrow evening we'll be able to get some uh gilliman against fulgrim action going and it should be should be good fun yeah i don't think i want that fight but we'll see how it plays out uh what do we have on the hobby news i think the the mark three box set as well as the individual sets are going up for pre-order I think this Friday or Saturday, if memory serves, it's, it's coming up very soon. And I'm probably going to pre-order the Mark III, uh, the, the whole box with the Daredevil Dreadnought and the Proteus. Probably going to pre-order that through my local hobby store when I get back home. What about you, Brandon? Oh, man, depending on the price of that box set, I want two. Yeah, um, oh, yeah. It looks like a great box set. It looks like something I really want. I'm kind of happy that it's not coming with another Praetor model because I don't need another one because I've got like five now. My only uh, disappointment with that box set is that it doesn't come with like some kind of character model. So you're not getting an HQ choice with that box set. That That's kind of a bummer. But again, I'm glad I'm not getting another Praetor that I don't need. Yeah, I really think that that box is... It's 
if you're thinking about from starting a new army standpoint, I think that the best way to look at that box is it's a supplement to the Age of Darkness box. Right. And if you're getting the Age of Darkness box, you buy that box as well. You pretty much got three three thousand points right there. Um, you know, and then throwing your Primark for spice or you know something else, a couple of tanks, something. Uh, but overall, I think it's going to be a great deal. What else have we uh, we seen for news? Oh, I know. Demons got rules. Demons of the Runestorm are coming at you hard and fast. You're going to get Samus models and, or Samus rules and Kavanda rules. So demon players, I think, Brandon, you've got so much shit for corn, and you've got Kavanda somewhere. You could run a Demon of the Runestorm list. Yeah, it's definitely crossed my mind. I've got uh, Kabanda sitting there in the pile of shame, but uh, you know he hasn't had rules up to this point, and I haven't been super motivated to put them together. But that uh, that might all change now. Oh yeah, that'll be a fun project too. Um, I would definitely like to see that on the table t- top. I definitely like to see you finish that big corn dragon that's sitting up on top of that shelf for a long time. But uh, you know, whenever you get around to it. No pressure. Are we just going to sit here and talk about projects we haven't finished? We're going to talk about shame. Shame works. Shame your buddies. They'll hobby more. Well, I think uh, instead of that, maybe we should talk about this book that we're supposed to be talking about. uh, The Outcast Dead. Uh, Dreading it. Well, this one was a tough one for us. Yeah. uh, Gosh, where do we even start? Do we want to do this all in just one go? I don't think we need a break. Yeah, let's just hit it and quit it. This might be a shorter episode, folks. I know we've had a couple of those in in a row now, but I mean, it's kind of kind of the ebb and flow of the hobby. But this book, I think, suffers from a lot of sprawl in that there are a lot of different story threads and a lot of different characters, some of which get introduced and never really go anywhere, but they're set up to be very important characters, but we never really see that. So I think this book, it, it suffers from, it, it's got a cool concept. Um, I like the idea that they were, that Graham McNeil was going for here. I just think it's executed really poorly, um, which is unfortunate because I think he has executed a similar concept in another book very well, uh, that book being Mechanicum. Yes. And what we're, what we're seeing here is we're getting a look at an imperial organization that we don't, up to this point, really have any true understanding of and that actually i think is the cardinal sin of this is this book is treated like we should have a really good understanding of what this organization is being the collegio astro telepathica but we really don't we don't have any idea how it works and it feels like the first part of the book is a lot of just exposition dump of this is it this is how it works. This is what they do. But it, it doesn't really draw me in because it's just kind of an information dump. Yeah. And the way that they set it up basically is that we're introduced to kind of our main character, uh, Kaizu Lane, who is described as being a very powerful and prominent astropath for this. They're kind of organized in like a noble house of astropaths and navigators. There are these two different kind of psyker talents that the Imperium uses to either navigate around the galaxy or send messages. Well, Kai is introduced it being like the best of the best. My biggest problem with that is through the entire story, we have no way, like nothing to gauge that against. 
Kai might be the best astropath in the galaxy, but we don't know what that looks like. So the story kind of suffers from this um, kind of modern writing syndrome, and I'm not calling this a modern story, but it you see it in modern media of a character is introduced and the the story just tells us they're the best of the best. When in reality, we don't really know why or how or what makes them different from others of their kind or, you know, other other people in their field. So it, this story is a little polarizing for me in that they kind of, Graham McNeil kind of wants you to like Kai, but he's not really that relatable and he doesn't exude any of this talent that we're, that we're set up to believe he has. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. And I think you, you really hit the nail on the head there of we're told that this guy is the best uh, you know, as an exceptionally gifted astropath, but we're not given a measuring stick for that. And to be frank, he's not a very impressive person at all. So that just makes me think even worse of anyone else who's an astropath. It's a, it's another issue. You know, we, I talked about this a bit in Prospero Burns, actually, of he's, it's not as bad as, as that one, but he's almost not even a character. He's just a plot driver. Yeah, and that can get frustrating. And I really feel like there is some overlap in this book and Prospero Burns. And it it really feels in a couple of spots like Graham McNeil's trying to ride the coattails of that book. Well, didn't Graham McNeil write A Thousand Sons? Yes. So I think he's more so building on that. There's there's a lot of overlap in all three of these books. Well, less so in this book than those two, but Prospero Burns and Thousand Sons have a lot of overlap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this book, you know, in that regard commits just an absolute cardinal sin that uh, we're going to get to later, but it it makes me have probably the most serious problem I've had with any book in this series up to this point, to the point where I say that this book needs to be decanonized. Oh, really? Yeah. So it certainly does get very confusing because the timeline overall of the, the events that take place on Terra, which is, is where the story takes place, they don't line up to the story so far. And Brandon, you, you've had a very good explanation of how this all adds up. Do you want to get into that now? Well, before we jump into that, why don't we kind of set the picture here of what's going on? What is Kai doing on Terra? Um, where are we going from here? Because this book is broken down into two parts. Ironically, it's called The Outcast Dead. Um, they're not in the first half of the book. Yeah, they don't show up until part two. Yeah, so we've got this character, Kai Zulane, who comes back to uh, the city of Sight on Terra, which is basically where they toss all the astropaths on Terra into this section of the Imperial Palace where they can just go do astropath things. Right, so it functions as like a, a college campus, basically. It's this enclave of where all the astropaths do their training and their certification to go serve aboard a starship. And when Kai is introduced, he's given to us as like this kind of broken person who used to be the best. And as we find out throughout the story, he is dealing with a little bit of guilt at what happened to the, well, I guess a great amount of guilt of what happened to the ship he was serving aboard. And we'll delve into that story a bit more, but from what we see from the outset is that Kai kind of has survivor's guilt of the tragedy that occurred aboard the Argo, which was an ultramarine ship. And there's quite a bit of controversy 
surrounding what actually befell the Argo. Now, Kai is under the impression that because he was under, or he was using his psychic gift while the ship translated into the warp, it caused a Geller field failure, causing the, the energies within the warp to tear the ship apart. We also have the perspective from the navigator who also survived this wreck, and she said that it was an unavoidable catastrophe and it wasn't Kai's fault. The thing being is that somebody has to take the blame for losing this battleship. And so they kind of want to throw Kai under the bus, but he also represents a very large asset to the astropathic, uh, Astropaths Guild or whatever. And so they want to try and salvage him, and there's a little bit of discourse like, well, the, the Ultramarines had been campaigning with this ship for you know, uh, a century or two, and it was past due for maintenance, which I call total BS on. The Legion that's famous for their logistics and planning doesn't forget to change the oil. So there's just a lot of back and forth about whose fault this really is, what actually happened. You know, the it just gets a, a little convoluted for me. Yeah, and I, I got to say that I don't like this setup because it kind of goes against what we we as an audience have been taught about how the warp works um and when there's you know that what this geller field failure which is this catastrophe that happened we have always been told that the psychers are the first ones to go yeah um, because they're the most sensitive to the warp and that makes sense that follows they're the most vulnerable to it they're directly exposed to it yeah so for the only two survivors of this ship to be two psychers, it just doesn't follow for me. That's a really good point. I didn't even think about that. But basically how the catastrophe is described is that when the Geller fields go down, the ship is immediately overrun by demons and, well, warp entities at this point, as they would call them. But in 40K, we'll know them as demons. Anyway, uh, the ship is overrun and the, the crew is slaughtered to a man until it is miraculously pulled out of the warp. And the only two survivors being the navigator and the astropath. Yeah, who, as I said, should have been the first to go. Agreed. But yeah, so they're trying to basically salvage Kai, make him be of use to the Imperium again. That's where we get into kind of our issue with timeline here. So what happens is what we try to do is a another death of innocence type scene. Right. So like we saw on Mars, but instead of it being all the Mechanicum personnel, now it's all the psychers and the uh, populace of Earth. Yeah. And the triggering event for this is Magnus coming and breaking the warding around Terra to warn the Emperor of Horus's treachery. Right. And this is where I have such... A problem because what does the book open with, Warwick? It is Rogel Dorn interpreting the well, I guess processing the information. He's getting messages back from Istavan, the drop site massacre, and they're getting back, you know, kind of these conflicting reports that you know uh, the fleet is on its way. Ferris Manus is out in front, and then very closely after that, it comes back that Ferris Manus is dead, and they don't know about Vulcan and Korax and. It, it gets a little confusing, but that's that I think that kind of disinformation, well, how would you say it? The the conflicting reports coming back are like this kind of nonsense. They're not really sure how to interpret it. Well, the story does make a point of they are, it is made very clear to them 
that the drop site massacre happened, that the counter strike was a failure. Right. Um, Ferris Manus is dead, and the conflicting reports are about what happened to the Raven Guard and to the Salamanders. The point is, this happens at the beginning, and then Magnus shows right. up. And if we recall, in Prospero Burns, the demon tells Hauser that the sacking of Prospero is just the overture. If you think the destruction of one legion is something, you should see the destruction of three. So the sacking of Prospero happens in the timeline before the drop site massacre. So lay it out, Brandon. For, for this all to happen, Magnus basically would have had to sit on his hands for a, a year or so. This, this is so problematic. If the drop site massacre happened before Magnus even showed up to Terra, that would mean that Horus was in open rebellion against the Emperor before the... And, and obviously the Emperor knew that before Magnus ever showed up. Right. Um, which means why... Which would then lead to the question of, well, why wasn't Magnus told, hey, Horus is in open rebellion, you need to, you know muster your legion or whatever right he wouldn't have even had to do the ritual because he'd be like well the emperor already knows but yeah he would have had to when we see magnus comes to horus and discovers that he's going to go traitor when horus is wounded on davin in the lodge of the serpent now from there we already know that magnus is on prospero from a thousand sons when this happens right and then from there horus would then be able to go to um gosh where's the next place he goes well he would have to he'd convert all of his all he'd get the other primarchs on his side right. he'd go to war with the Eurasian technocracy prosecute that entire campaign finish that go to istvan be there for is on istvan three for six months we weeding out his uh loyal legion fortify istvan five get the counter strike get the eisenstein to reach terra Warn the Emperor. Well, so that's another thing that... Another conflicting point for me in the story is that when Rogaldorn intercepts the Eisenstein and picks up that crew, he tells them very specifically that his legion has been mustered back to Terra for some greater purpose. So Rogaldorn would have had to organize the Counter-Strike, go back to Terra, and then wait for wait to receive messages on the status of the drop site massacre, right? Well, it gets worse than that. That's just on the Terra side of things. What also would have had to happen is that the legions show up, they get massacred, that news gets all the way back to Terra, then Magnus has to come through and break the wards. After that happens, the Emperor has to order Lehman Russ to bring thing, um, Magnus. Magnus back to Terra in chains, and here's the kicker part. We know that Horus altered those orders. Right. Which means that somehow Horus would have had to slaughter three legions, have that news get all the way back to Terra, and then somehow Lehman Russ would have to still not know anything about this right. at all. Right. Which, so if they sent the message to him, hey, get... Uh, you need to bring Magnus back here in chains. P.S. Horus is an open rebellion. 
Like, right. And then it, it and makes then he no gets sense. A collect call from Horus saying, why don't you go ahead and just kill Magnus for dad? Yeah. And Lehman Russ would be like, well, I heard you are an open revolt, but you are the war master. So I might as well just kill Magnus. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense at all. But anyway, I digress. That is why to me, this book needs to be decanonized. Now I, we talked to, uh, during our game weekend, actually, our friend Martin from Fires of Betrayal was here, and he said that there's a later short story where they retcon this a bit, but this is just so egregious to me that, I mean, I'm glad that at least somebody at some point finally caught it and was like, hey, this doesn't make any sense at all. But quite frankly, this never should have been allowed to to happen this way. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, it it seems very reckless, but this is again, one of my problems with probably my, my only real issue with Graham McNeil is that he's been on social media before talking about how canon's not that important. You know, continuity, it's not that big a deal. So I think it's just an excuse for lazy writing, and that's kind of what this is. You know, he didn't check any of the cliff notes from any of the previous events. Uh, and it's it's just a really frustrating story to get through, especially like all this happens very early in the book. And if you have our insight, and I guess if you've been following along thus far, you're right here with us. Why do we need to finish the rest of this book when we already know that it's it, it just totally breaks continuity? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and that's why I got to be honest with you. I, I'm not a fan of coming at saying this at all. This book's a skip. Yeah, uh, and it... It does hurt to say that because I I definitely want to engage in all these books, but this one makes it very difficult. I've lo- I've read this book once before, and I never thought I'd have to revisit it again. And then Brandon's like, "We need to start a podcast," and I was like, "That is not how that conversation <laughs> went down." <laughs> well, I felt pressured to do this again, but here we are. Anyway, yeah, this one this one's a no go. Um, if if you're not reading along with us. Uh, or, or you're behind, don't worry about this one. We'll give you the cliff notes. There, there's no consequence to this story, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say. Everything that happens from this point on is null and void. It has no effect on the future. I don't think we ever see any of these. Well, no, we, we do see one of these characters again in the future, I think. But uh, we'll, uh, we'll get there when we get there. So basically what we get into with Magnus arriving on Terra is Graham McNeil tries to bring us again to a another Death of Innocence-esque, like this cataclysmic event happens to this planet. And most affected are the Psychers, which follows. It's a psychic event. The problem is it's, just, it's not executed as well. And I think I know why this is. I think it's because the Death of Innocence doesn't actually follow a character through. It's a description of the events and... It's done very, very well. But with this, we're trying to follow a character. We're trying to get a description of what is happening on the macro and also do this on the micro level. Right. And it it just struggles to, to balance both of those concepts. Uh, also, by the time the Death of Innocence rolls around on Mars, we've been there for a while. So we have a pretty good idea of what Mars is like. We don't really have the same character perspectives at this point in The Outcast Dead. So, I mean, while we know that we should care about Terra, this book does not really get us invested in why. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great way to put it. So essentially, you know, we're following this character Kai through this death of innocence esque um, event, and you know, uh, like I think it says, doesn't don't some demons like manifest apparitions? It's very. I don't know that you would call them demons directly, but there there are I don't know. I guess there are warped entities, yeah, showing up and the. Um, the peacekeepers or the the enforcers of the psychics are doing battle with them and one of my problems with the story is like i said early on they tend to introduce these characters that are like you know they're they're written in as being like the best in their field kai is working with this like astropathic therapist basically um athena her name is athena and i really want to like her i think she's great she's got a couple of great lines i think she does a couple of cool things but in this scene, they just leave her behind. Yeah, like, and and we basically get that we get this other astropath, Anik Sarashina, who goes insane functionally uh-huh. and imprints this message to to Kai's subconscious, right? And says, "You're going to know who it's supposed to go to. Um, you just need to do that." And then you know she dies on that note though you talked about the guards of the city of sight i actually think the black sentinels are pretty interesting yeah this is another uh kind of like elite unit like kind of like the lucifer blacks or the gino chiliads they get introduced and you know you you get a little bit of a descriptor you see what they're about there are a couple of them that end up doing some pretty cool things action wise uh i can't remember the um their general's name or if what if he was a general or not but yeah they they've got some pretty cool war gear they are basically able to rebuke this uh warp intrusion on terra and it's a uh, maxim golovka yeah golovko yeah uh yeah he, i thought he was pretty cool he's kind of an a-hole mm-hmm. but you know he's very much about doing his job so you know kind of, kind of a neat character yeah. So yeah, and that's kind of the end of the first part of the book is he gets this message imprinted on him and then the custodies show up and say you have some kind of psychic business happening. We're going to take you to prison. Right. Which okay. Um great. And then we get into the second half of the book and this is where the outcast dead or as they are presently known the Crusader hosts show up. Right. And now we get to more problems with the story. <laughs> so the Crusader host is an interesting concept. And we meet uh, a few more of these characters later on in the, the heresy story. But the Crusader host is are elements of each legion that are left behind on Terra. And their purpose is to recruit for the legion and send them off to the Crusade. So you get elements of... Uh, like I said, each legion. So I think we've got three world eaters, a thousand sun, a death guard, a emperor's children. Uh, what am I forgetting here? Oh, a, uh, uh, son of Horus. Son of Horus, yeah. Right. And they basically stage a prison. Well, they've all been captured or uh, incarcerated. Yeah, this is an issue I have, though. They say that they imprison the entire Crusader host. Right, Loyalist Legions, too. Which means they also imprison the Loyalists. And, like, I'm like, if you're worried about, oh, we don't know who's a traitor and who's loyal, well, they're probably not loyal now. Right, so, <laughs> uh, in the Master of Mankind book, you meet, I think, at least one, well, I know one for sure, maybe two, uh, of these 
crusader host elements in that book, one of which is a blood angel, and they're just keeping him in like a hotel room with a locked door. These guys are in a high security, like the guys in this story are in a high security prison. They're on like this plateau that is supported by a gravity field. And if anything happens, the gravity field will shut off and the plateau will just fall into the abyss and they'll all die. So the 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 breakout scene is pretty lame. I, I wasn't thrilled. I wasn't happy. And I think um, like if you're watching a prison break movie, nobody fights their way out of a prison. Like maybe there's like a whole, I guess uh, that's not true. Sorry. Like in Guardians of the Galaxy, they are, they're able to fight out because there's a riot going on, basically. Well, that's not happening in this story. They just break out of their cells and they fight their way to freedom. In a lot of prison break movies, they end up sneaking out. And uh, like I said, there's either a big distraction or they sneak out under cover of night. Well, let's before we get into the prison break, let's check in on our buddy Kai, who is getting psychically interrogated by these two extractor people. And basically what they're finding is when they enter his subconscious space, uh, they call it the dreamscape. And I guess every, it's made apparent that every psyker has something like this. And this is where they're able to retreat within their, their subconscious to kind of calm themselves or whatever. And Kai's is like a big desert with a a fortress uh, from the ultramarines in it. Well, it's some, it was it's a, it was an ancient fortress on Terra, but Gilman has a record of it because he put it put the record together when he was on Terra. Ah, it, it's it's a little screwy, but it's um, this ancient ancient I want to say Middle Eastern fortress somewhere. I, I can't remember now. Anyway, it's it's not that important. He's got this mental picture of this big fortress where he feels safe. Well, anytime these extractors go probing for the information, it has been cunningly hidden in his big PTSD center. So when he starts, when they start getting close to it, it's hidden in his memory of the tragedy aboard the Argo. And he doesn't want to think about that. So anytime they go probing for it, he gets these horrendous visions or hallucinations about the tragedy of the Argo, and it pushes the interrogators out. Yeah, and it manifests itself as like a monster that I almost got like a Dune vibe yeah, so, from yeah. it of like the big worms in Dune. But which the, we should watch that movie. It's on Netflix. Yeah, it'll be fun. <laughs> um, we've been having like a Punisher weekend so far. It's been great. Anyway, yeah. the the thing under the sand is the Argo, but it's written like this. You know, this you know big shark or a big predator underneath the waves, and it's some really cool um, cin- uh, cinematic writing which I really appreciate about this book. I did, I did tell you about that, Brandon. There are some descriptors in the book that are excellent. They're very good. Well, um, I, again, I think this is something that Graham McNeil does well when we're not trying to follow a character and he's just describing things happening. Right. He does that very well. Um, it's just when we, again, when we try to get in on that micro level, yeah. it kind of goes awry. We've kind of covered where Kai's at. And uh, the, again, we're introduced to these interrogators that are the best in their field. They work at the Palace of Terra. They have no equals. They're totally fucking useless. Yeah. Yeah. They have a hell of a time. And one of them. All right. Let's talk about this. The. The prison break happens because of magical bullshit. Right. So uh, the Thousand Son, um, a father, a father, a father, 
Uh, that's okay. Actually, real quick rant. Why does everybody in this book have a weird ass name? I can't pronounce hardly any of them. I don't know, and I don't care. I'm not going to remember them. Um, we're looking at a character list because we can't remember who any of these fucking people are. And, and half of that reason is honest to God because I can't pronounce their freaking right. names. Right. So, a farther, or however the hell you say it, is a thousand sun captain, I think. And he's a. I don't give a shit what he is. He's a psychic. I, think he's a I don't care. He is now using psychic bullshit to influence people to let them out of jail. Yeah, like it, they, he's got a psychic dampener on. I was going to say that. Yeah. And I was like, um, okay, if the Crusader hosts are that fucking dangerous, uh, and one of them is a thousand son, don't you think you'd have a couple of sisters, sisters of silence on hand? Especially when they're being held right next to the Imperial Palace. They're right there. The garrison is right there. I yeah. don't... It, it's just very convenient the Sisters of the Silence don't show up until the very end of the book. Mm-hmm. So this Thousand Suns guy is able to influence a stormtrooper with a plasma gun to shoot a custodies in the back. A custodies in, in the full m- armor. Most complex, durable armor, second only to a Primarchs or the Emperors in the entire Imperium. And a single plasma bullet goes through it like a hot knife through butter, killing this guy instantly. Look, I'm not saying it couldn't happen. I'm saying that it, I, it's highly I'm, convenient I'm saying, that it did. I'm saying that it can't happen because in the following scene, the Death Guard character is able to wade through fields of fire, plasma, and bullets and absorb every single hit until... Like, two chapters later, he finally dies of his wounds. He gets shot point-blank with a plasma gun, too, and he lives. That's not even the most offensive part of this prison break. The most offensive part is the world eater fighting the other custodian. Right, so the power fields of their cells get dropped, and this psycho world eater, Tagore, is able to lash out at a fully armored and armed custodian's warden overpower him and kill him with his bare hands and it's described as this world eater punching this custodian's war plate in the chest over and over again until it shatters i know that astartes are strong but nobody is breaking adamantine with their bare hands yeah it's it's so ridiculous the entire time i was reading this i was like no 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 no. If he had had a weapon at any point in the fight, it would be more believable. He basically does the whole thing with his bare hands. Yeah, it's... Ugh. And then then we get to the, the automated defenses, and basically, long story short, more magical bullshit. They're basically able to reanimate the, this custodian's head. Right, uh, and, and use his neural patterns to override the automated defenses which i was under the impression when they brought us into the prison this central plateau that they're on if anything goes awry it just falls out of existence that never happens and it's never explained why yeah it's and and the frustrating part is there's so much of the second half of the book that just gets chalked up to magical bullshit yeah because even when they fight their way to the hangar which the hangar is very convenient 
there also being no guards in the hangar is very convenient. These, like, there's seven Astartes or whatever, and oh, they're able to free Kai because the Thousand Suns guy has a premonition that Kai is going to be very valuable. And so they steal a transport and fly out, and when interceptors are called in to shoot them down, again, the Thousand Suns guy uses psyker bullshit to convince one of the pilots that his allies are actually enemies and the pilot one pilot shoots down his like two or three wingmen and then he flies into a side of a mountain well he also shoots them right so not before he tags the outcast dead ship as well they crash land in the city and they go on the run yeah Oh man, I'm glad. Oh, I'm glad this is gonna be a short we, episode. We forgot about a character. Oh, what was his name? He's like the Psy Hunter. Um, oh well, he doesn't pop up until like now. He, he shows Yasu up. Nagasena. He shows up in the prologue because he is the one that arrested the Outcast Dead. Well, the Crusader host, I should say. Is he? Yes. So he, oh. he's in the prologue, and then uh, Nagasena is this. Terran psychic psyker hunter basically which the sisters of silence do that i think this is a little bit of a um i think he's supposed to work for them uh he's yeah he he works for the imperium definitely it's just that it feels like graham mcneil wanted to make this character and he kind of shoot a hor- shoehorn him into this story yeah well, and then don't they get like a, so they basically, they, the outcast dead go on the run and their, a crew is collected up functionally uh, with a custodian and uh, Yasu Nagasena, this this psychic hunter. And then don't they have like a Kalexis assassin or something? Yeah, he's got like a bondsman that's a Kalexis assassin. And then they also pick up the, the one Psy interrogator that lives through Kai being rescued, as well as Athena who she gets like three lines uh like just a handful of dialogue after this but like they need her because she has a strong connection to kai because she worked with them for five minutes um and then also uh there's a host of black sentinels there as well with maxim of the love yeah Uh, but basically they're tailing them through what this area called the petitioner city and this is basically where refugees come to try and get admitted to the imperial palace right and this place is also unofficially under the control of uh, Babu Dakal. Yeah, but what would you call him? Like a ganger? Yeah, he's like a souped-up ganger warlord, and he's kind of consolidated uh, the majority of this city. Uh, nobody messes with him. His gang kinds of run, kind of runs roughshod over everybody. He's got like these souped-up gangsters that are all righted out. And he's, he's got, like, a character twist, which I feel like they kind of revealed too early because it's very apparent in, like, the first or second scene we meet him. He's a Thunderwolf, which all of them are supposed to be dead. Yeah, and I there, I have another problem with that, but Same. We'll, we'll jump there. So, basically, they get, they crash land, uh, they get away, basically, they discover that the, uh, the hunting party, as I'm going to call them, is watching them through Kai's cybernetic eyes. So they go ahead and just rip his eyes out. It's not very, very artistic. They just kind of pop, pop. So then they, they find a chirurgeon in the city right. to try and take care of uh, their death guard friend. 
And at this point, they're attacked by uh, Babu Dekal's gangsters. Um, they are able to fight them off. Uh, I believe one of the world eaters dies. No, the Emperor's children and the, the Emperor's children guy and the Death Guard die, which yeah. is okay because they were buddies. Because uh, Saul Tarvitz and Nathaniel Garrow were buddies. So. Member? I, I member. <laughs> yeah, except... I mean that's how that's how interesting they were. I forgot which ones died. Yeah. Um, uh, but but here from... here's my problem with this part here is after after they fight off they fight off hit the uh, Babu's uh, second in command guy Gota and they pick up this like bolt pistol and one of these world eaters goes this is a thunder pattern bolt pistol they're all supposed to be dead and I'm like you should have absolutely no clue who right. the thunder warriors even were. Yeah, the, because you're not exactly the ones reading a book. The the Thunder Warriors are a distant myth at this point. I can see the Thousand Sun maybe knowing who they are. I I don't see the World Eaters giving a shit to know. Give me and this and this wouldn't work for the story, but give me like a old school veteran Dark Angel, and maybe maybe I'll give this to you. Yeah. Well, it, I remember reading a short story somewhere that the, the Warhounds were also there um, at the calling of the Thunder Warriors. So it's not, maybe it's not totally far-fetched because I, they never get into any very much of Tagore's backstory. He's like the, the senior world leader there. He's a sergeant, I believe. Yeah, and, well, actually, I mean, they do get into his backstory, but it's directly conflicting. Yeah, yeah, so... Um, there, he might be from Terra, but they also say that he fought through the Battle of Decia with Angron. Well, I think that was the battlefield where Angron was captured by the Emperor, basically. So he's nobody survived that except Angron because he wasn't there. There were no other survivors of Decia. So yeah, it doesn't make any sense, and that's what you called out when I read that. I had thought it was the second when later in the story, the world leaders will go back to um, what is that planet called? What is his home? Planet? I don't remember his home planet's name. I don't remember the name of the planet, but they do go back there. And I was like, well, that doesn't, that's what I was thinking about is when they go back there. I was like, that doesn't make sense. That's way later. Yeah. Yeah. That's in betrayer. Yeah. So I, I was like, none of this makes any sense to me. Um, but when you kind of explained it that way, I was like, okay, well, it still obviously doesn't work, but at least I can, I guess, see what we're going for here. Anyway, the Chirurgeon is doesn't really do anything for them. Um, yeah. But they, their, their space marines die, and they're like, oh, we want to give them a warrior's funeral. They're like, we're on the run, but oh, we're going to stop what? to have he, an entire funeral. He does do something that I appreciate. He, uh, you know, Kai needed medical attention because they ripped his eyes out. He packs Kai's eye holes with gauze and gives him some kind of stimulant that makes Kai shit his pants. And I thought that was great. <laughs> so, right, after the Death Guard and Emperor's Children guy die, they need somebody to take somewhere to take the bodies, which is like, you know, should be their biggest priority when they're on a hostile planet behind enemy lines trying to get off. Go bury your friends. Um, I'm not a soldier. I don't know. Seems... Seems convenient just to get them to go to the, the House of Woe, which is where they end up. And it's this kind of 
chapel barracks gathering place where people take their dead in the petitioner's city. And it's run by this old stonemason guy that was kicked out of uh, the build party for the Imperial Palace because the, the chief mason didn't like him or whatever. Yeah, so they get there. The uh, The hunting party comes and finds them. Kai is reunited with Roxanne because she's there right. because the plot needed her to be there. She was the navigator of the Argo. Yeah. It it does pop back to her being there throughout the, the story a right. very small amount. But it doesn't... I mean, she is literally just there because she needed to be there at the end. Right, right. Um, uh, she doesn't even have, like, really a character arc at all. No, yeah, there's no development for her. Yeah. She's just kind of like, I want to be here to help people, and I don't want to go back to my rich, spoiled family. Yeah, and basically there's a fight. Uh, lots of fighting happens. Babu Dekal shows up himself, and it yeah. turns out that he was a famous Thunder Warrior. He was like the Emperor's banner bearer during the unification of Terra, which if... He was that famous, and he was still alive. Somebody would know who he was, and the emperor was sure as, would sure as shit somebody send somebody to kill him. Yeah, and we find out the reason he's after these space marines is he wants their gene seed because he thinks it'll help him stop deteriorating. Right, which was a a key flaw for the Thunder Warriors, and that's why they were replaced by the Astartes because the Thunder Warrior is technically bigger, stronger, and tougher than the Astartes. The problem is their bodies can't handle the same kind of augmentation and they just break down over time. So when Babu Dekal shows up, he's like covered in tumors and, you know, he's got like a rasping voice. He sounds like he's dying. Uh, and he's basically trying to do gene science magic to save himself. And he can't do it without gene seed. So anyway, Roxanne and Kai, Roxanne, her entire function there is to reconcile, help Kai reconcile the Argo. Um, and also, I guess we should mention his dream visitor, because he's popped up before. Yeah, now. so like in four or five cutaways, like when Kai is unconscious, he's having these dreams, and he's being visited by somebody, by this, you know, magnificent golden figure who's very mysterious, but we immediately know it's the Emperor. Yeah, I don't really understand why they don't just come out and say it, because it's it's incredibly obvious and straightforward. Right. Um but and so here's another thing, like when, when the astropaths are all getting certified, Kai talks about how they, they're exposed to the emperor directly because he reshapes their mind to make them better at being an astropath or, or like he forms the psychic channels in their mind in a certain way that forms them to this purpose. So in theory, Kai has this very intimate connection with the emperor, but he doesn't recognize him when he sees him. Yeah, I mean... To me, it's the Emperor could disguise himself psychically, even to an astropath, if he wanted to. Right. The question I have, why? Why yeah. would he want to? It doesn't serve a purpose. And if yeah. the Emperor has a psychic connection with Kai, how come he doesn't just tell his son, Rogel Dorn, who ends up tracking this guy down, hey, I need that psyker alive because he has information? Yeah. Long story short, the Emperor at some point tells him, you know, they're playing a game of regicide and... The Emperor says something along the lines of, sometimes the only way to win is ensure that your opponent doesn't. Kai, in reconciling his uh, guilt over the disaster on the Argo with Roxanne, is able to actually view this message, which 
is functionally Horus dueling Sanguinius and then Horus dueling the Emperor, and he he basically sees the end of the heresy. Right. Um, and to him, it is so terrible that he can't let anybody have it. Um, so what he ends up doing is looking into Roxanne's third eye, and there's a sex joke in there somewhere. Yeah, I'm not too confused uh, <laughs> with the whispering eye. <laughs> So, yeah, so if you look into a navigator's third eye, it's the eye they use to look into the warp. If you look directly into that, you'll just die. Mm-hmm. Unless you're Nag- uh, Nagasena, in which case he does it, and he just goes, he kind of spaces out for a little bit. Yeah. So I don't know if you picked up on that. Oh, and then he's able, Kai's able to do this because the Emperor regrew his eyes. Right, right, yeah. Um, when he made contact with the Emperor there at the very end... He got his eyes back somehow, and it freaked everybody out for about 10 seconds before Kai kills himself. And then also, they go back to fighting. In this, no, that's kind of the end of it, but in this this whole scrap, this scrum, um, the world eaters are killed by, two of the world eaters are killed by a custodies who kill him in return, even though the world eaters are using broken weapons. But we've already seen a barehanded world eater kill a custodies, so I guess the custodies just kind of suck. I don't see what the hype is about. And then Nagasena is able to kill Tagore, and that's that's it for them. But, um, uh, the, I mean, the uh, I will sun... say I appreciate the fact that Nagasena doesn't do that on his own. He gets help. Oh yeah, oh yeah, he gets uh, gets help from the Black Sentinel guy. Yeah. Um, uh, son of Horus Severian, he runs away, and he pops back up in uh, when they're putting together the the Knights Errant. He's recruited for that. So he shows up in the Vengeful Spirit, I want to say, because he teams up with, like, Loken and Tylus Rubio and them. Anyway, then Afarther, the Thousand's son, is dueling the Clexus assassin, who is tailored to killing psychics. Unless the psychic reaches deep within himself and severs his connection to his psychic ability. In which case, they, the Clexus is useless against them. I've never even heard of this happening. It can't. It's never happened before. It's so dumb. Because a Calexus, when it's using its animus speculum, can fucking annihilate your soul by looking at you. That's what it does. Just because you're not a psychic anymore doesn't save you from your nervous system being annihilated. Well, and isn't the Calexus a pariah? Yes. So he shouldn't be able to touch the warp at all. But then he but just potentially he depending just does depending on what kind of pariah you have on your hand, they, they do come in varying degrees. But like a very powerful one, like uh, Elizabeth Beckwin at the end of the Eisen, uh, Eisenhorn books, she can basically shut down psychers by being near them. Maybe this one's not that powerful. I don't think Graham McNeil does a very good job at writing psychics, custodies, Calexis, unarmored space marines. So when you throw all those into the same story, I think we just get a really bad story. But uh, yeah, the Thousand Suns guy is basically able to um, cut off his connection to the warp and stop himself from being killed by the Animus Speculum, even though he's already been hit by it. So it kind of happens instantly. Now, uh, not long after this, um, you know, the Thousand Suns guy is speaking directly to Rogel Dorn once all the fighting settles down. Rogel Dorn and the, the Sisters of Silence and the Imperial Fish show up and kind of start talking to them. And I, I now see why everybody likes Rogel Dorn. And it's because he shoots a farther in the face, like in an instant, like a farther gets like one line out and then Ro- Rogel Dorn just wastes him. And I was like, okay, yeah, I get it. I see why everybody likes him. 
perfect. You know, really wraps up that character arc. I really liked it. Robo dork. Don't care. You got through, I can't, couldn't believe you got through the entirety of The Last Remembrancer without calling him Rogaldork once. Nobody's perfect. All I know right? that was like a book ago, but I am still in shock. It, look, again, nobody's perfect. I was it's... I was so shocked that you volunteered to take that story. I was like, oh, he's just going to do it so he can roast the Imperial Fist. No, not even once. Yeah, I was actually, but that's the thing. That was actually a really well-written and good story. Yeah, exactly. Because and it, it didn't, and it, it, it didn't it, have Rogaldor being an absolute Mary Sue like it, he is in every other story. It proves that you can be an unbiased host. No, I can't. Iron within, iron without. Death to the False Emperor. You did it once. I'll see you do it again. Anyway, um, the story kind of ends there. Um, Nagasena says something like, the truth died here tonight, and Dorna is all like, you better watch your fucking mouth or I'll kill you. And Nagasena is like, I have this sword named Honesty, I can never lie. To which Rogaldorn is like, oh, you always tell the truth, I could use honest men. I need you to go track down that son of Horus Severian. And Nagasena says, okay, that'll be my last hunt. It's not. It's not. He shows up again. Because this is, I think Nagasena, like I said, he's just a favorite of Graham McNeil, and I'm not really sure he fits in. Anywhere? Anywhere. I, whatever. Psy Hunters can be a thing. I don't give a shit. But he functions more like an Inquisitor, closer to an Inquisitor in 40k, but without any of the uh, gravitas, I want to say. Because mm-hmm. uh, he's, he's written like he's supposed to be this uh, thoughtful warrior poet kind of guy, and I don't really care fair enough not my bag baby yeah and that's it that's the outcast dead again this is a skip this Uh, is the this is my first skip yeah same here if i had to rate this story i'd give it like a two out of ten i'd give it like a negative two out of ten i think some of the descriptors save it but well no they don't save it they salvage it maybe actually you want to know why i give this a negative two out of ten why because he rips a line directly from the Lord of the Rings. Not like, who, straight up plagiarism. Not all who wander are lost. No, it's uh, all that, yeah. All, all that glitters that, is not gold. Yeah. 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 And I was, I remember I texted Warwick right when I heard that. And I was like, really? We're just no. plagiarizing Tolkien now? And also, you know, the Navigator yeah. has the Eye of Sauron. Yeah, again, mm-hmm. like, the, the Outcasts did are trying to get off Terra and rejoin their, their Legion, but... They don't really have much of a hope of it. Um, there's maybe like the bones of a plan getting getting together when they get to the House of Woe. Uh, nothing ever comes of it. None of the characters that are introduced have any kind of arc. You know, Kai does, I guess, does reconcile the Argo incident. But it doesn't matter because as soon as he does, he kills himself. Um, no idea what happens to Roxanne. I don't know that she ever shows up again. Severian like I said, shows up in a later story. Not that it matters because uh, I think, uh, and we'll get there when we get there, but the Vengeful Spirit book has its own problems. Um, Rogel Dorn is barely in this story. Rogel Dork. Uh, who else? I don't know that we ever see Babu Dekal again. Ugh, where? Who am I forgetting? You know, all the custodians in the story die in basically a single, well, there's two scenes I want to say with the prison guard custodians, and there's like three or four scenes with the one that is tracking Kai, like uh, Athena and the other psychic interrogator. I don't know that we ever see them again. 
uh, yeah, why? Like this, there's no takeaway from the story because we already are cognizant of the outcome when the story is written. We don't, I don't even know if that's a good way of saying it, but it's like, we know what happens to the emperor. I'm not sure we need to know how the sausage is made there mm -hmm. because we're going to see it happen anyway. So to get this premonition... Well, and it's written in such a way as well that if you don't know how that works, like if you're just reading through this, this is your first exposure to Warhammer, and you're really not going to understand anything that if you this see is your, anyway. If this is your first exposure to Warhammer, you're never going to pick up another book again. Oof. I meant more so just the Heresy series Fair. writ large. But yeah, that's uh, that's it. What's... Uh, what do we got uh, on the ticket here coming up for... I think it's the Primarchs book. I will double check real quick. It's Deliverance Lost, and our co-host Paul will be on for that one. Looking forward to that. And then we'll have our... Well, no, I, I guess our next episode is going to be a Hobby Roundtable, and then it'll be Deliverance Lost. Yeah, and I think on that Hobby Roundtable, I think Martin is going to be joining yes. us again. And so we did allude that he was here for a uh, game day and had a lot of fun with him. Looking forward to hearing him talk about his thoughts on all that. We had a blast hanging out with him. So looking forward to talking to him during that roundtable. You want to plug some socials and then we'll call this a night? Yeah, definitely. So why don't you guys go ahead and look us up on social media at... Look us up on social media. Our Twitter is LegionCast, a Horus Heresy podcast. Shoot us an email at LegionCast18 at gmail.com. And I guess look us up on Instagram at LegionCast, a Horus Heresy podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I'm looking forward to talking to you again. Please uh, share this podcast out there. Give us a rating. Give us a comment. Let us know how we're doing. And I will talk to you guys next time. Yep. Thanks for stopping by, everybody. And remember that Warwick is bad at Warhammer. Warhammer.